Hi, everyone. You're listening to the podcast of Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community of startup builders where experienced operators share firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Mark Swenson. Mark brings two decades of experience leading global sales teams for startups and public companies. He is a chief revenue officer at DNA Nexus and has expertise in creating go-to-market focus, as well as scaling the revenue engines of emerging tech companies. Today, we're going to discuss two topics. First, how a startup should build sales organizations that fit its stage. And second, how startups can leverage account-based marketing campaigns. But before we get into that, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Cool. So I'm, I'm excited to hear a little bit more about you. You were with a number of well-known companies throughout your career. Which one of those were most important? And can you tell me a little bit more about them? Yeah, I spent about a decade at Shortel, uh, growing when they were $12 million in revenue and, and taking them public as an officer of the company. I, I ran their European operations. And I, I think it was there that I learned a lot on the sales leadership side and how to build and recruit and scale teams. But it wasn't until after that, when I was at Axiant, that I really understood the value and difference of building systems and crafting the go-to-market fit. I spent about uh, three years at Axiant, tripled their revenue and their team. And after that, I worked at a company called Signified, grew that from less than a million to over 50 million in two years. And I've, I've been at DNA Nexus now for the almost the last year. Awesome. I also know you uh, play a little soccer too. Do you want to tell us how you got started there and, and what you do? Yeah. So I'm, I'm 45 now, but I still play in an open league, which means that I'm playing against 20, 25 year olds. I played through college competitively. And I, I would say that the leagues that we're in are still pretty competitive. And I actually love hiring athletes mostly because I find a lot of them are competitive, but also because they don't mind having a coach. They don't find criticism to be negative. They find it as constructive. So yeah, I, I love, I love uh, hiring athletes, working with athletes, but it's, it's not a prerequisite. Got it. Well, after this, I might have to send over a resume. <laughs> I've played a couple years of water polo myself, and I find that working with athletes is easier it's kind of a mindset thing. And I think you're getting at it by saying that the, the growth mindset and taking criticism is typically something athletes are used to, which is like so important for growth and business. And I've never heard someone sort of put it so straightforward, but but you just did. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with the topic of building the sales organization for different stages of a startup's life cycle. What are the implications of hiring a full sales force too fast? Yeah, good, good question. And so in kind of the lead up to this, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about the, the sales learning curve, which was a, a hypothesis by Mark Leslie, who was the CEO of Veritas. And he talked about it almost like thinking about it as a manufacturing process where over time you can get better, better costs of sales by actually going slower. And I've Unfortunately, I've seen this movie where you hire the sales team too quickly and either you don't have the lead flow to support a large sales team or you don't actually have the real go-to-market fit dialed in, right? I think there's a temptation when, especially founders who've had some early success where they've used the CEO position to capture some early customers. And as they look at their growth trajectory, they realize that they have a capacity problem. And so they go and, and they hire a bunch of salespeople, or in some cases, even worse, they hire a, a well-intentioned, well-pedigreed former director of VP of sales from, from a, a strong company they admire. And that person goes and just hires a bunch of people because that's the sales motion that they've learned in terms of how to actually create growth. And it's, it's actually destructive if you do it too fast or you do it at the wrong time. Yeah, I've actually heard uh, a military phrase is slow is smooth. And what they mean by that, it's for reloading guns. And what they mean by that is in order to do it quickly, you actually don't want to make any mistakes. So 
as you are going through your process of unloading the clip, clearing the chamber, I really don't know much about loading guns. Um, but as you're going through that process, you're, you're, you're served better as far as getting it done. And you'll do better reloading if you take your time and make sure not to make any mistakes. So it sounds kind of like what you're getting at in hiring. Yeah, it's, it's mistakes, but it's also, it's not just going s- slow for the sake of going slow. It's going slow to actually create a closed feedback loop. And that feedback loop has to do with crossing the chasm where you can, you can get the, the first 10 to 15% of your customers without too much effort, but to be able to cross that chasm to actually get real traction, you actually have to have a repeatable process. And if you, you know, speaking on that first, Mark Leslie talks about the different types of reps, right? So he talks about the first, the Renaissance rep, then the enlightened rep, and then the coin operated rep for the three different phases of your growth. And the idea behind the Renaissance rep is the Renaissance rep is generally a smarter, self-managed, self-motivated rep who is okay working independently to find points of traction and who's, who can work, who can iterate quickly and provide that feedback back to the organization. Generally, if you go and you hire a really expensive enterprise rep because they've been very successful someplace else, oftentimes if you don't have the complete process tailed out and ready for them to immerse themselves into and they have to figure it out, they're going to be a short timer. They're going to leave quickly when they realize that you, you don't have it figured out so they can't make money or even worse, you've hired too many reps and don't have the lead flow and still they can't make money. So you have to be careful. Generally, you'll find that the that renaissance rep is more creative, is more interactive, and it's some, it's a it's a rep who really enjoys the younger stages of the company. Awesome. So yeah, I definitely want to keep talking about the other two types of reps, but let's put a pin in reps. I, I want to take it back to the concept of the learning curve because I still don't completely understand like what is the difference between a regular manufacturing learning curve and then this uh, sales learning curve that we're talking about. Yeah, I think in manufacturing, costs start very high and decrease as volume increases. And as you transverse this curve, you move from a net loss to a profit. And the same is true for for sales reps, where over time, the first reps that you hire will end up being more expensive. And you're taking losses on that because you are iterating the right process to deploy. and as you get better traction, you can hire reps that can ramp faster and be productive sooner as you figure that curve out, that learning curve of how to work with the customer. And that that learning curve of lear- learning to work with the customer really starts with focusing on the right persona, right? So you have to help the sales rep figure out, you know, inside an organization, you'll have practitioners, you'll have financial buyers, you'll have executive buyers, and really figuring out the exact title the firmographic profile, the vertical profile, their geographic profile, their financial profile, and the path to find that person is the secret sauce to being able to accelerate that learning curve. All right, let's continue with the sales reps conversation. So you mentioned there's three types. Can you kind of outline those for me? And we already spoke about the the first type, which was Renaissance. Yeah, and I think that the Renaissance rep is the is a, is maybe the most important rep to get, and then there, the next level of rep is what what Mark Leslie called the enlightened rep, uh, and the enlightened rep is it's again blending some of those activities where they're they're still providing feedback to the team, but you haven't fully created a totally repeatable process where you get leverage of a dollar comes in here and a dollar comes out here at X amount. And the, the final rep is the, the coin operated rep. But I, I think it's important to call out that the type of rep, even though you're hiring for different personality profiles at these three stages, you're still also determining what the right rep is based on the product you're selling. So as an example, are you selling through a channel? Are you selling a transactional sale? Are you selling an enterprise sale? All those will determine what the right rep is 
And those reps could be very different. And you could have a, a traditional SaaS rep who's a renaissance rep, but you're still, you're maybe only paying them a hundred to $120,000. Or you can have a renaissance based enterprise rep and you might be paying that rep two hundred and fifty to $350,000. Uh, so again, it can range dramatically based on what you learn is the right go-to-market fit to attack that ideal persona that you've mapped out. And we covered renaissance and enlightenment reps. I'm not sure that I caught the third type. Yeah, coin-operated. It's a bit of a joke talking about laundry machines and uh, horses outside of grocery stores, right? That's coin-operated. And it's basically the, the joke is these are the reps who are just motivated by money. They don't have any interest in helping the company iterate on their process. And the real focus is how do they make money by making sales? And generally, it, those reps, even though in some ways they're more expensive, from a cost perspective in terms of what they're actually producing for you, it's a lot less because you actually have real visibility in terms of what your costs, your cogs are, you know what your magic number looks like, you know what your sales investment recapture looks like. And so you actually can at that point really begin to scale your number of reps where in the earlier stages, you have to be super, super careful about doing that because the the damage is if you hire ahead too quickly, all it's going to do is burn cash for a founder and it's going to create a lot of frustration. Got it. Okay. So I guess my next question is like, what is the right rep to get at, at each stage? So when you're an early company, what kind of rep should you be looking at versus when you're say series A, series B? Actually, in some ways, it's not even just series A or series B. It's really about the the, the product you have and the market you're target, targeting. I have a, a brother-in-law who's a, a lawyer and, and we joke that the, the answer to every question in the law is, it depends. And I think that the same is true at, at a certain level for really building out a sales team, which is in some cases, your path to market might not even include salespeople, right? So if it's direct consumer, or we saw that as an example, Jira and Aslation, they purposely don't have salespeople and theirs is all organic growth. At the same time, their competitors like HP and others, they rely on enterprise sales reps to help position their product. So if you're selling direct versus channels, if you're selling web versus live, um, the new SaaS model is kind of a blend of these. In general, you'll find that depending, the, the more complex the sale, the higher the remuneration is for the reps. So the true enterprise reps, the on-site enterprise reps, the the outside reps, sometimes they should be called, um, you could pay anywhere from two hundred to $400,000 on target for those type of players. Um, and there's some great sales benchmarking data that the bridge group comes out with that kind of tells you, depending on what size of company you're at, what some of those targets can look like and how many dimensions in a comp plan you can have, et cetera. It's also very different from partners who might be selling a, a horizontal SaaS platform where you could sell it to any company versus a vertical SaaS company where you might only be selling to utilities or you might only be selling to telecom companies or to pharma companies, right? And the more specialized you are, the more you're going to pay for those reps. And you know, so that the the traditional SaaS inside reps where you're sitting in and it's transactional, you can get away with, depending on your location, between sixty and $150,000 a year for those reps on target. And so when I say on target, that's the full amount you're paying them. Half of that's going to be some sort of base. And again, that depends also on how you've figured out in those early cases with your Renaissance rep, how your customers are arriving at the at the eureka moment through your product. So not to take it too far back, but I actually spend a couple hours a day on Jira. So I'm, I'm very familiar. I'd, I'd never heard that they didn't have sales reps. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and what the strategy is there? I hate to talk about that because that puts my job in danger, right? The, and I think that they've, they've begun to start to, they've started to reverse course a little bit on this, but they grew to over, you know, again, they've broken every rule as a company, right? They've got two CEOs, which you're, you say you're supposed to have. And they're headquartered in Australia and they stayed headquartered there and they've done all of their, all their marketing through kind of word of mouth. And even Slack started a lot that way with kind of a, a network effect to uh, how they're deployed. Mm -hmm. 
And it wasn't, it's not even until you get multiple teams that you can go buy different licenses. And so they've been allergic to building a real enterprise sales force. And it's, it's actually, it's, if you can, if you can get away with it, it's great. But the flip side is they rely that they've had to really be thoughtful about their product for how adoption works so that because there, there's not someone who's shepherding that within these enterprise organizations and they're relying on a, a natural step function to happen uh, without being guided through it. So it's in my mind, it's it's high risk for most companies, but it's allowed Jira and especially that the Atlassian and their products, Jira and their team's products to be to be virally successful. Okay, so maybe you're not going to tell me, maybe you're not going to tell me like what type of sales rep to hire at each stage, but can you tell me a little bit more about the strategy of when to hire a renaissance versus an enlightenment versus a coin operated sales rep and like a little bit about why, why you're hiring them? What are the goals and motives there? Yeah, I think the, the first step is and, and so maybe not, not only just the, maybe the why, but also we should talk about the, the how, um, because sales reps are notoriously difficult to hire successfully. And I think there's maybe even a perception that we could just grab any extrovert that's come out of college and, and put them in a sales role, and that's going to work. Um, and there's actually a lot of science around what the DNA of a salesperson looks like. And I can talk about some of those best practices first, but I think... One person who writes a lot about this, and I love his blog, is Jason Lemkin. And he actually founded Saster. He's also a venture capitalist now. He's written a lot about this in terms of when to hire your first reps and when to hire your, your, your head of sales. And the, the first reps you hire need to have a very high IQ. And they need to be collaborative in terms of working inside the organization. So that's kind of the, those are, in my mind, the, the hallmarks of what makes a, a renaissance rep a renaissance rep. And ideally, you're going to hire someone in that role who has some experience in sales before. And once you're able to get two reps working at a, an attainable quota, right? And so there's, there's different levels for what your quota should be. And your quota should be, in general, you should be paying, you should expect to be pay up, up to 20% of your sales to, to, to sales. And you can imagine that the, the variable comp on, on sales people will run between 8 and 12% for the, the variable components of that as part of the 20%. But once you actually have two reps that are functionally paying for themselves and working, the next step in general is to hire a sales leader. So that's where the danger is by trying to work in your business rather than on your business or not really knowing what some of the natural pitfalls are going to be in terms of managing sales teams, managing forecasts, managing deals. I think Jason Lemkin talks a lot about that in some of his blogs, very, very thoughtful details. He agrees, or I agree with him, that right after you have two, maybe three reps who are being successful, the next step is to actually invest in a sales leader. And it might seem expensive, but it's actually going to be well worth it. And they should actually be way more creative for helping you shorten the overall sales cycle and to accelerate that product fit to market and create some go-to-market expertise. So at that point, it's up you're handing that off to a, a head of sales. Ideally, you're hiring someone who's actually been a head of sales before. And what I mean by that is that they have experience with all the different components that you're looking for. Because part of that is you have to know what tools you're going to use. You have to know how to how to create a cadence, how to create uh, communication and follow-ups. You have to understand how to do forecasting. You have to know an actual flow and how it will actually be orchestrated inside the system. Because if you start building out something without a lot of intention, it's going to take a lot more to unwind it. As an example, I've seen so many Salesforce's, salesforce.com implementations that have been ugly because they've been kind of built in a serial non-structured approach. And then when you actually bring in someone who knows what they're talking about, everything needs to be kind of restructured. And so my recommendation is to, to, to pull in a sales leader at that early point. And for all of your salespeople, it costs you 
very little, but you can get set up on, you could get sales assessments done as you're interviewing people. So there's objective management group is one, one company that I, that I trust their assessments. It, it costs you a hundred dollars a month to set that up and you get a 13 page report for anyone you're thinking about hiring. And it allows you to sidestep the, the, the most, the, the worst thing you could do is hire a couple of people who aren't going to be a good fit either culturally or, or from a skill set perspective. And so getting some external data and some validation of your, of your concerns is, is super important. I know that Angel Needers has resources to help do that as well. Yeah. This conversation is making me think about how this, well, the company is a complex system, but there's systems inside of it. And we're, we're talking about building out a sales team and a sales organization, but there's also in engineering departments, marketing, management, ops, all, all sorts of things that have to fit in and coexist in that in that system or ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. How do those other departments fit into the sales learning curve construct that that we mentioned before? Yeah, and I think Mark Leslie he writes a, a fair amount about it, and I think the the spirit of it is that all of the ideally in a well-oiled organization constant updates are being filtered back through product management and through engineering in terms of what is working in terms of messaging where the market is moving what the customers are reacting to and it prevents you from especially in an in an agile software environment where um, changes can be made rapidly it prevents you from going too far down a particular path that isn't providing value on the front end of the sales cycle. And in general, I prioritize the front end of the sales cycle, but it's just as critical in the post-sales world as you talk about customer success. You can be very successful in selling a product and struggle in the customer success side. And that same customer success feedback loop needs to be in place for product management and engineering because what makes you attracted to a product as a customer isn't always what keeps you happy as a customer going forward, right? And some of the, some of the hot spots you'll find have nothing to do with anything that came up in the front end of the sales cycle and all have to do with living with the product going forward. And so all of those, all those gears need to be coordinated together so that you have that, you know, I think he calls it the, the wood behind the arrow where sales is the front end of the arrow and the sales engineer falls behind that and sales management's before behind the sales engineer. And then you've got uh, the other components of the organization falling behind that. In my experience, the best person for helping to manage those feedback loops is the sales engineering team or the solution scientist team or the solution architect team, whatever you're calling the, the technical compatriot with the sales team, they generally get pulled into all of the more complex deals. They're generally still attached to deals on the customer success side after the fact. And they're also technical enough usually to be able to provide the feedback so that it's usefully digested into the rest of the organization. Can you tell me more about actually setting up that feedback loop? I'm really interested to find out, are you writing it down in a process document? How do you approach like actually defining the, the feedback loop that you've mentioned? Yeah. And so this is where the more mature an organization, the better you're able to kind of create the swim lanes for communication and you're better able to even visually show where what parts of the sales stages that you're actually getting stuck in. So I, I have some experience with you know, value stream mapping, which is actually a manufacturing process where you kind of create each step and the time between each step. And you'll begin to see the places where you actually have either friction or you actually have issues because those stages are taking longer to get through than other stages. And so how we map that out. And again, that's a sign of a mature organization. But in my experience with startups, <laughs> the startups with people wearing multiple hats, the real key is creating just a cadence for communication for those people to play feedback to each other. And so at a very minimum, having a call that involves the 
the head of sales, the V or multiple sales engineers, product, and whoever runs the engineering department, mapping out the feedback either on a weekly or biweekly basis is important. I, I had uh, one CEO who created a, a report every Sunday where the entire organization did you know, almost like a this week, last week, but the, the goal in it was to highlight and surface and ventilate things in the business that they'd been exposed to in that last week. And that was part of the, that feedback loop. So whatever whatever works for your size of organization, structured or unstructured, I find in, in, in the high energy, fast moving startup environments, simply a meeting every week or every other week is usually sufficient for playing that back to the organization. Some kind of cadence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, moving on. It's been said that several initial deals need to get closed by founders. What if founders are incapable of closing any deals? Uh, what should they do in that case? <laughs> the question then is that, the, is that there needs to be someone on the team who's capable of doing that. If no deals can be closed, then I think it really qual- calls into question whether you've actually arrived on the right product market fit. And usually the best way to engineer that is to not sell something, but to actually find who you think the target customer is and agree to do what amounts to customized development for them so you actually have a product that fits a need. We, in one of my last companies, Plutora, the, the product really started with um, an engagement with Telstra and all of that work that was created in creating a, a product was able to be monetized through other customers. But the, the real feedback, understanding the pain points, understanding the need ended up being done in partnership with a with a customer. So if, if you struggle with the selling part, then don't sell and and develop. But the the other side of this, and I think it's an important thing to keep in mind is that a CEO executive sell is not the same as a repeatable process. In fact, it's the definition of a not repeatable process. And it's it's often tempting to say, well, I've got no sales experience. I'm an engineer and I'm the CEO and I sold these five deals. Therefore, someone who's trained in sales should have an easier time. And that's not really the case because companies see the CEO as being the person who is most accountable and that if they have problems, they know that those problems will get fixed because they're buying it from the CEO. A sales rep does not have that gravitas. And so you can't assume that what worked for you as a CEO will translate into sales reps. You have to assume that you are hunting for product market fit and that CEO-led sales are not, by definition, a go-to-market fit, and you have to go create that. A lot there. I can't wait to listen back and uh, try and understand that. I've been in organizations, maybe said a different way, Oleg, where the the CEO is successful in making sales, but a CEO sale is you have the gravitas of being a CEO, and you can you could do you could do things completely right. differently than you'd have a rep do it. But so okay. you almost have to relearn how to sell uh, as you're hiring your first couple reps because what you did as a CEO will not work for the reps you're hiring because they. They simply don't have that authority, that gravitas, that familiarity with the product, et cetera. And so it's it's going to be different. Got it. Yeah, that make that makes a lot much that makes much more sense. I mean, as a CEO, not only do you have intimate knowledge of, of what you're selling, but just the fact that you you have that title, people are gonna listen to you differently, they're gonna treat you different, it's gonna be a whole other conversation. So it's not exactly repeatable. Next, I wanna move on and talk about account-based marketing. I actually uh, just found out uh, or learned last night about account-based marketing. So I'm interested to learn more. Can you just tell me briefly what it is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually not sophisticated. It's really just an approach. Instead of trying to, to hunt with a shotgun, you're hunting with a rifle. And so the idea is the more you can know about a particular customer and the more that you can target to whom you're selling, the more you can create a customized approach to that account. And this is especially important for companies that have a very defined market, or as I like to call them, uh, vertical SaaS companies, where there there might only be in some cases 100 or 200 total targets, and each of those companies 
could do between 100,000 and 5 million with you, right? And so approaching each one, you have to be careful not, you, you can't afford to burn any bridges. You can't afford to lose any prospects. And so you actually have to take a, a much more focused approach to how you're selling them and just buying AdWords on Google and holding webinars and kind of running your, your Pardot and Marketo type of in, engagements won't be sufficient to drive you into the market. Got it. So it, it's especially useful when you have a, an established market and a strong vertical I'm wondering, uh, could it be implemented by by startups potentially? Do you have to have an established market that you're looking at? Are there specific use cases for like account based marketing? Who should do it essentially? I think if anyone should do it, if they've done enough work to find out who their ideal target persona is. Um, so as you go through that early Renaissance stage of of understanding your customer and creating the product market fit and then understanding their go-to-market fit, what's going to end up happening is you're going to create certain, ideally, what your team is doing is they're creating certain personas to whom you will sell. And once you understand who the personas are, then it's important to actually focus on, and this, you know, this is an important step, so you can't, you can't assume that you can just do account-based marketing without understanding what the content is because the next step is to really intimately define the pain points that they have that you solve. Um, Because if if you're saying we do this versus we work with companies who have this pain, you're not going to get traction in terms of your messaging. And you can kind of customize that with some A-B testing. But really what we've we've done here at at, at DNA Nexus as an example is we've seen that um, we sell them to different verticals, clinical diagnostic companies, pharma companies, academic medical centers, and there are limits to the number of companies that there, there's a limit to the a finite limit to the number of large pharma companies we're going to sell. There's a finite limit to the publicly traded clinical diagnostic companies. And so uh, what we've done is we've created deep messaging that talks about the primary pain points for each of those companies. And we've created campaigns that allow the first, the first math piece of this you have to understand is it takes between eight and 12 touches with a prospect for them to react to you. So um, oftentimes people say, oh, I've, I've, I've emailed them three times or four times and they've never gotten back to me and they must be dead. It's like, no, you've, you, you haven't even hit the beginning threshold of when you're going to see results for that. And so the first part is crafting the multiple messages that you're going to create. And then the next piece is what, what, uh, what I call creating the golden campaign. And that golden campaign is, architecting each of those steps. And we've actually, we've worked with a, a great company called Closed Loop. They've, act, they've literally written the book on inside sales. Hillman Sori is the, the founder of it. And they can help come into an organization and do some, some consulting for that, where they help you craft your messaging across multiple steps or create A-B campaigns with you. And then the next part is once you understand the content that you're going to disseminate across those multiple steps that also include LinkedIn and email and phone call and multiple touches, then the next step is to augment your data. We use, we use um, Zoom Info. Uh, there's lots of different lead sources that augment and allow you to mine data for particular accounts. And you'll get the information, the phone number, the email, the, the contract address of the, of the person that you're targeting as part of your, your campaign, your persona. And then we use, we use a system called Outreach. Uh, there's, there's other tools. There's Persist IQ. There's Sales Loft, et cetera. And what they do is they allow you to kind of create a multi-step campaign that automates the steps for you and pulls the detail out of Salesforce. So you get an incredible amount of customization in terms of what it looks like to the customer, but it's functionally automated, including the phone calls, what will serve up those list of phone calls for that inside rep. And each of those steps go into creating a campaign and you'll run your organization through those campaigns. Then you'll take a break where you just do some nurture and you can start another campaign against them um, after a couple of months. And so that 
that is the a way to not exhaust your limited base, but also staying front and center in front of your targets. And you know, as you map out kind of the the swim lanes for this looks like part of this is done usually through marketing where they create the content. Sales is usually the ones or inside sales is the one who actually used executes that campaign through kind of a um, outreach feature set. And then those deals that get set up through it again, whatever you're doing, whether you're a, a CEO prospecting venture capital firms, if you know the exact, the names of the partners, you can set up this way. If you're a CEO targeting your, list of potential partners you could set up this way, or if you're targeting your list of customers, all, all this is a relative, relatively strong approach for fast returns against the passive approach of, of doing kind of broad horizontal type marketing and waiting for, you know, this is the, the difference between what we call uh, spears versus nets, right? So this is account-based marketing is using spears where the broader horizontal marketing is using nets. Got it. I was actually in my head making a casting a wide net metaphor earlier. I chose not to use it, but I'm glad that we got back to that. <laughs> How do you choose the best channels for your campaigns? Good question. So I think it, it depends on, this is, this is again, understanding your target persona and um, how you're going to touch them. So one, one channel that is fantastic is LinkedIn because it, it generally allows you to touch specific people and it's almost always up to date because it's updated by the person themselves, but also understanding where they're going to be or what they focus on. So if you're, if you're selling to scientists and where they go, it's a lot different than selling to IT and where they go for, to educate themselves and how to get information. And if there are specific channels or shows or magazines or media that are specialized for your persona, then great. I think a lot of time for startups is that they don't necessarily know that. And there's kind of a brute force approach to the account-based marketing where you're really, this is really just about volume and numbers, right? And I don't think you, you shouldn't be scared of that or think of that as being crass. That's simply the way to touch base with customers. And it's the way that's it's really the only way that's consistently provided startups real traction in the market. Yeah, LinkedIn. I mean, it's uh, one of the modern tools. I'm wondering, um, do you see it? Uh, do you see it being just as relevant as it is today for the next ten years? Do you see something else coming in as far as a as a channel? I'm just kind of curious to get your take on that. Yeah, you know, what's funny is um, I've been talking with some other sales leaders, and I think there's there is a sense of the old is new again, especially in this time of COVID, where Physical mailers, uh, which has been out of fashion for a while, um, is back in fashion, right? I didn't think you'd suggest that. Well, so we've actually, we've had a lot of success with, as an example, we just did a, a virtual whiskey tasting where we sent people sample whiskey bottles and invited them to a, a whiskey tasting. Um, and part of this is understanding what your what your customer acquisition cost is. So in a lot of companies, you know, the customer acquisition cost, there is no good or bad customer acquisition cost. It depends on what what you get for your recurring revenue and how long you keep your customers. But if you're spending today $1,500 to $3,000 on customer acquisition costs and you know exactly who you're targeting and you could actually, for, for $500, I'd be happy to send them something that's going to get their attention and have a 50% attach rate to it rather than going all day with a cold email campaign where you're getting one or 2%. So um, this is really just about, it all comes down to math. And once you have enough data in terms of what your cost per acquisition are, again, if you're, if you're selling something that's going to net you a hundred dollars a month, you can't spend a thousand dollars on a, uh, on a specialized campaign for, per prospect. But if, if you will net $200,000, then spending a few hundred dollars to actually get in front of someone and being differentiated, there's, there's tremendous value there. So the next, so the answer to this next question might just be look at the numbers, but how do you measure and evaluate the effectiveness of your account-based marketing campaigns? Yeah. Presumably anyone who's actually attracting any sort of money or is, or is looking or talking to VCs, it's going to be really important that you have at your fingertips some of the relevant metrics in terms of 
what your efficacy is for your sales team, for your sales and marketing effort. You've, you've probably heard Oleg of the, of the magic number. Seven. <laughs> it's, it's one. Um, and so the, the, the hard part in legacy on-premise equipment selling, it was pretty easy to say, look, I spent $100,000 and I got $500,000 in sales out of it. And that's a, you could, you could make the case for whatever, you know, you, you might want three times, five times, 10 times efficiency against that. What's hard in SaaS-based businesses is that you're making investments now and you're paying for them over the course of, in some cases, many years, right? And so the magic number, I think it was Bessemer Venture Partners who first came out with it. And I think Scale Venture Partners created iterations on that where the idea is it's very difficult in SaaS-based businesses to pull out what the sales efficacy is. But you can look at the broader sales and marketing budget and what it nets each quarter. And the idea is you want to make back what you spent in one quarter over the next 12 months. And if you hold on to your customers for three, five, seven years, then all the out years after the first year, you're making substantial margin. And so if your sales and marketing costs, there's, a, there's an actual formula. You can look at the look up the magic number, but a sales efficiency of one is about where you want to be. If you are under one, that means that you should maybe spend a little met, a little less. And if your sales efficiency is more than one, then you want to spend more because you're actually able to return more and grow faster if you were spending more. And so understanding your uh, magic number, understanding your cost of customer acquisition, understanding your CAC to LTV, those are going to be things that um, any venture capitalist is going to want to see. And if you're not measuring it now, by the time you do your next fundraise or by the time you do your next event, you will need to have that at your fingertips. And so having either a financial person on board or a sales leader who understands how to track that and to manage to that will, will be important long-term. If you're not, my, my concern for those who aren't tracking it now is it always ends up surprising the founder when they realize that their their sales team is being called inefficient, right? Or And so having, having seen that movie as well before of uh, being called on the carpet for being inefficient, understanding when to invest and how is critical. So it sounds like you have a lot of experience in this area. I'm curious, how much of an improvement have you seen the uh, account-based management campaigns deliver versus those traditional shotgun or wide net methods? Why choose the spear? If the net works, if you can actually use Google AdWords and just have that be the function for getting your leads or, or some sort of other broad-based campaign, then, then do it and do it until it breaks. Um, but what, what I found is that especially for enterprise-based solutions and B2B-based solutions, the this being able to be targeted in your account-based marketing does a couple things. Number one, it puts the lead gen firmly in the hands of the revenue engine uh, team. So it, in you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny because if you... If you look at large enterprise companies, the part of the marketing team that's really valued is the brand marketing team because you've already created that flywheel that enabled you to get to a certain level. Um, and so the, the team that's doing the cold calling is, is discounted. But the opposite is true in startup environments. In fact, if you talk to most VCs, the thing that they, that the person that they think is most critical in a lot of times is the person in the marketing team who can actually build that account-based marketing approach, which is largely outbound and largely targeted. And it requires really a high degree of thought and creativity in terms of how to manage, how to create and manage and iterate on the messaging. Um, so the it, in my experience, leaving leaving lead generation up to someone else or leaving it up to chance in terms of what you will get is no way to make your number. And it's no way to provide consistent results. And so it's the place where I've had to take ownership. If I'm going to own the number, 
then I want to own the account-based marketing with that. And it's, in my mind, it's the most efficient and consistent way to get leads to feed your team. And there's nothing worse than a team without leads because they will leave you. It doesn't matter how loyal they are, how, how, how well you treat them. If they don't have enough leads to feel like they can make money, you're going to see some incredible attrition. So what are some common mistakes or pitfalls besides not having the leads to avoid when implementing these ABM campaigns? What I found is that the more customer feedback you can get in building your messaging initially, the better off you will be. I think a lot of a lot of times there's CEOs or even early salespeople think that they know why a customer bought. And it's it's always surprising to me when you actually talk to the customer and ask them why they bought that the reason's different. Right. And so even though you, even though you said, hey, it worked because we were pitching reliability and scalability and security, they bought because of ease of use, right? <laughs> or the, they, and so this is, this is where you don't always know why they bought and pulling your existing customers to really understand why they bought allows your messaging to be way more efficient. And so, cause you could end up continuing to iterate on a theme that's not impacting customers, but the customers are creative enough to understand the theme that would be successful. And so really tight customer communication and understanding as you're building out these campaigns. And then on top of that, finding ways to iterate on those messaging. What you will find, we had a, I worked for one company called Signified, where as part of this, we actually create, we had a, an account-based marketing campaign. We were focusing on VPs of e-commerce, we sold a security product to prevent fraud to e-commerce companies. And the email that we found that got the most traction, and this is what tools like Outreach will uh, show you, is the highest open rate was an email that said, send us your worst orders. <laughs> that was the title. And whatever it was about that really captured everyone's attention and if it weren't for one rep kind of going off the reservation a little bit and testing that, we would have never found it, right? But we were able to build multiple iterative campaigns on, on top of that. Awesome story. I mean, yeah, you, you love to hear a success story from someone who stuck their neck out and, 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 and did something a little bit out of the bounds. And that's such an interesting quandary for the CEO. I mean, the CEO of a company typically is also the founder, unless the founder's been removed. And you started the company for a reason. And that reason is you identified a problem and, and you, you come up with a solution to that problem. So who, who is going to tell the CEO that maybe that problem that his solution is addressing is actually not exactly what he originally intended? It, it, it's kind of a funny irony, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the things that is a funny quandary is that oftentimes the things that made a company successful in the early stages are what is going to limit the company going forward, right? And so well, I see this a lot where a founder has gotten a company where it is by quickly iterating on new ideas and, and quickly changing a lot of their go-to-market elements. And as you get to certain levels and stages of maturity, that thrash, that organizational whiplash is actually what's going to hold the company back. And so I think that's where that the benefit of hiring mature leaders around the CEO to be able to say, hey, I, I really appreciate that you read that Harvard Business Review article last night, but we're not going to change our entire sales process because of that today. And sometimes having people around you that can say no, or maybe just as importantly is I, I've, I've seen how that's played out. Here's, here's what you're not considering in terms of the impact of the consequences. And let's think about this before we go, is I think one of the main roles of the leadership team in early startups. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, what worked for you in the past is not necessarily going to work for you 
in the present or in the future. It, that is a funny quandary. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we've we've done this whole interview basically without doing a single sports metaphor, but I'm going to throw one in here at the end. Uh, the lob shot, the lob shot in water polo works wonders when you're like 12 to 14, 15 years old. It's just people aren't ready for the lob shot. But, you know, as you move up in level and the competition increases and the goaltenders get better, those lob shots don't go in so easy. And, and it actually takes a whole other wide variety of tools and tricks that you need to implement in order to still have that lob shot be successful. You, you also need like the threat of a, a strong, strong side shot or a strong cross cage shot in order for that lob shot to work. So it's like those things that work so well, your go-to moves early on are not necessarily going to work for you in the end. I don't know if you've kind of experienced something similar. Totally. I'm just laughing at your, uh, it's a, it's a strong metaphor. Uh, probably works better for water polo players, but yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And I think that's also where surrounding yourself with, you know, one of the things I've, I've seen is surrounding yourself with not only kind of a strong leadership team, but also getting venture capital advisors or board members who I've used the term, you know, see, I've seen that movie before, right. And someone who has that, those, those codified lessons, those scars, um, that making sure, you know, if, if you could just avoid everyone else's mistakes, right. Uh, and just be creative around the, certain places where you're going to be innovative. Absolutely. That, that's a, uh, I don't know if I can emphasize that enough in terms of who, the people you surround you with, the, who you surround yourself with are going to be the, the people who help you become successful. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end it. I, I think that's a great piece of advice for s- startup builders moving forward is like surround yourself with people who align their, their values and priorities with yours and that's the recipe for success and do it at every level from top to bottom. Is there anything you'd like to add? You're not going to completely connect that dot to engineers and their ability to actually connect operators to these CEOs. I don't want to make it too explicit there for the listener. I like to let them figure some of these things out themselves, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Last thing here is a bit of bookkeeping. Yeah, we're going to end it right there. If, if you want to reach out, send us email at info at Thanks to Mark for joining the show. If a listener wants to reach out, maybe get some advice, what's what's the best place to reach you? Uh, LinkedIn's a great place. LinkedIn's a great place. And if you reference Angel Nears, I'll pay special attention to it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Let's try to get you back here on back on here soon. Thanks, Oleg. <laughs>